Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. So last time I was up here, I um, spoke on, um, actually I thought about asking you what I spoke on, but I didn't want to embarrass you, so I decided I wouldn't do that. Um, I spoke on pressing into the kingdom, if you remember that. And um, I, I stress that that word pressing is used a number of different times in the New Testament to describe um, various things that we're supposed to earnestly pursue. That's what that word uh, means, to earnestly pursue something. So last time we talked about earnestly pursuing um, the kingdom. Today I would like to uh, talk about something else that we're supposed to earnestly pursue according to God's word. And you can turn to 1 Timothy 6 a while. Um, we're supposed to earnestly pursue righteousness. The word righteousness um, appears in the Bibles about 300 times. The word righteous about 225 times. And the word just about 89 times for a total of those three about 611 times. And there would be other forms of that particular idea that could be counted into that. But uh, I didn't choose to do that. But if you start, especially reading through the book of Psalms, if you start reading through there you, and, and just specifically looking for righteous or righteousness or something along those lines, it comes up, up a lot. It seems like about every third verse. So it does seem to be something that God is concerned about, and we want to talk about that a bit this morning. So let's, um, let's turn here to 1, Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6, and I'm going to start reading about verse 3, I guess, and, and we'll read here. So Paul's talking about some, some, um, some false teachers in the first few verses, and um, he's commenting on that. And then he goes in verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railing, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, Supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. And they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness. And that word, those two words, follow after, is what we're focusing on here. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. And I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth, all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll quit reading there. Now, just flip back a few uh, pages to Second Timothy two, and verse twenty-two. I won't read the context here. But here again, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, "Flee also youthful lusts." 
but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's all I'll read in that particular um, part. But, um, you know, righteousness. So what is righteousness? How do I pursue righteousness? Uh, What's involved in this? Um, Just a general observation. I don't think I'd have to talk very long to convince you that none of us are born very righteous. Actually, we're all born in unrighteousness. And uh, even it seems that after I studied through this, um, this particular topic, it seems that even after we are born again and we have committed to following Jesus, there still is that, um, that propensity to unrighteousness, and we have to make a conscious effort to pursue righteousness. I had to think about Paul whenever he was before Felix. Um, I don't know what all, you know, how that conversation went, but it seems that Paul um, preached a, a small sermon there to Felix, and it says there's three, three parts of his sermon. It said he reasoned with Felix concerning righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. I would have liked to have heard that sermon. I wonder what Paul told him about righteousness. Whatever it was, it caused Felix to tremble. And it caused him to think. And he was almost persuaded, it said. He said, some more convenient season. But, but Paul, you have something to talk about. So let's think about it today for us. How do we properly pursue righteousness? I think the first thing we have to do to properly pursue righteousness is to identify and deal with the opposite of that, unrighteousness. The Bible speaks quite a bit to that as well. How do we we define unrighteousness? How do I know what that is? Is there there a succinct uh, definition of unrighteousness? Well, I do know this. Um, if you read through the New Testament, especially the epistles, you will come across numerous times where there's these catalogs of sins. And you, you know where they are. There's, there's different times this appears. And um, Paul, or one of the apostles, will say, if you do this, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to read a few of them to you here. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he had this to say. He said, do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Very easy to understand, isn't it? I'd like to just hone in on one phrase here in this particular couple of verses that I read, and that is, do not be deceived. That that stood out to me. Because it seems to me that Paul wanted to drive home that it is extremely likely that we will be deceived about this subject of unrighteousness. And I think there's a couple of ways that can happen. Uh, First of all, we we tend to think that none of this describes me. Um, It sounds like pretty, pretty bad stuff. And so we, we look at ourselves quickly, we look at the verse quickly, and we say, well, that doesn't really apply to me, I'm good to go. I think that can be very deceptive. Do we, do we really allow God's searchlight to come down and look at us? And do we think through these things? Am I? Is it, does any of this describe me? Am I, by any chance, have, do I have unrighteousness dwelling in my heart? I think the other part of the deception part of this is that we live in an age where everything is just gray, it feels like. There's such a, there's such a, uh, people try to mix and they try to um, 
excuse sin. And it becomes extremely deceptive. And we uh, kid ourselves and we think that um, uh, we, we sometimes, I think, tend to go along with the political correct crowd and justify just about everything that comes along. I hope not, but I think, I think we see that a lot in our world. Let's just quickly look at this list. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but, you know, let's pick out like the word a reviler. Are we revilers? Well, what's a reviler? The NIV says it's a slanderer. Well, that's a little bit, maybe a little bit closer to the English language we would use. But a slanderer is a person who would run down another person's character. Wow. Is that, is that, do I possibly fall into that category? Um, do I, do I ever have that uh, tendency to maybe, in a, in, in, in a way to hold myself up, I want to run down somebody else? I, I trust not. I don't think we want to be, but I think sometimes there's that temptation. I know of a, of a certain uh, person that, um, I don't know the person real well, but I've heard some things about him that um, are a little bit disturbing. And uh, I've met this person a time or two. And the odd thing is, this person has never hit me as being a disturbing person. In fact, I rather, um, I rather enjoy the, the guy, I guess. But, but there's always this niggling feeling in the back of my head. Do I not know this person or, or, or do I? But if I had never heard of anything about this person, my, my, uh, I would tend to think highly of him. You know. So uh, it, it's because of things I've heard about him that make me wonder and question and always kind of look at him with, um, with a questioning eye. Um, and I guess that's okay. Uh, but, you know, in some ways I wish I wouldn't know anything about him, so I wouldn't have to do that. I don't want to be a reviler, and I know you don't either. Um, I had to think of the whole word extortioner here. Uh, that's, that's a swindler. Uh, you know, tax time's around, and so we have some massive swindling going on in the country. Um, I'm convinced that sometimes tax planning ends up being just simply a very nice uh, way to, to uh, disguise swindling. Um, I've, <laughs> I've had enough conversations with people to, to know that's the case. All right, well, enough on that. Let's go to another list on, in Galatians 5. I'm going to read this one to you. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of which I tell you before as I told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I'd like to pull a phrase out of here. After Paul goes through all these different things, and he, he lays out all these different works of the flesh, he calls them, works of unrighteousness, he says, he tags on that little phrase, and such like. Now, why do you suppose he did that? Well, I'm not sure, but uh, he, he did something similar in Ephesians 5. He said... Uh, that uh, Christ wants to present to him a glorious church that doesn't have spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Here, here's what I'm going to suggest. It seems to me that Paul expects you and I and his audience to be spiritually mature enough to understand that we can make some application. So what if my little pet, quote, quote, sin is not listed here? Does that make me free to go? I'm good to go because it's not listed in Paul's list here. I don't think so. Paul expects us to 
be mature enough to understand that, yes, that fits into the and such like category. We have a real a tendency to excuse ourselves if things are not spelled out in detail. And um, all you have to do is read legalese and you'll understand that. Some of those documents that attorneys write out is uh, quite lengthy because they have to make sure everything is covered. And it seems like that's our natural tendency. Have you ever heard a person say something like this? Um, well, you know, I can do such a thing, and I don't think I'll go to hell for that. I would say be very careful with that. If we start using that, that line of thinking, I think what it's, what it's, we're kind of telling on ourselves. You know, we're kind of edging toward the edge, and um, we're, we're thinking, well, that doesn't show up in any list, so I'm good to go. Be very careful about um, about those kinds of excuses. Another thing, I would, another verse I'd like to bring out to you is a very short one in 1 John 5, 17. It's four, four words. John says, all unrighteousness is sin. We have to deal with this fact that all unrighteousness is sin. Not just some of it, not just my brothers, but that one that I make the biggest excuse for, that's sin. Ezekiel adds to that a bit. He says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Paul in the Roman letter says, the wages of sin is death. I would just encourage us, let's quit making excuses for our unrighteousness. Um, the unrighteousness that we tolerate and that we assure ourselves won't take us to hell after all. Be very careful. It does pay a wage. And I would encourage you, just to trade that for God's gift of eternal life. It would be curious if a person could do a poll of uh, the, the inhabitants of hell today, how many would have used the excuse, I won't go to hell for that. It would make one wonder. All right, let's move on. We need to understand that righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist. We are very well familiar with the uh, verse in 2 Corinthians. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? If we read through to the end of that verse, it says, the reason it gives, it says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The reason God gives here that we should not try to mix righteousness and unrighteousness is because we're his temple. And if we want to inhabit righteousness in our lives, it, the two are not going to coexist. We have to get rid of the unrighteous parts before righteousness can take up residence in our lives. It's a lot like the frustrating job of trying to mix oil and water. Um, it's a tiresome job, doesn't work well, and as soon as you let it set, it separates one more time. The homogenization of good and bad, as you well know, has reached pretty unprecedented levels in our world, and I think we're, we're aware of that, and I want to encourage us to make sure that we don't join that, um, that, um, that group, I guess. I think one of the most frustrating places a person can be is to be too worldly for God and too godly for the world. That homogenization of trying to mix the two is a very frustrating place. Um, I like a verse in Jeremiah 15 where Jeremiah is, is talking to God 
and he's, uh, he's complaining about his, his plight and some of the things he's having to deal with. And God tells Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, it's your job to separate the vile from the precious. And I, and I like that. Take that precious out, out of the vial and run with it. Separate the two. All right. The next thing I would like to emphasize is we have to make a decided choice to remove ourselves from unrighteousness. Our text here talks about fleeing. In verse 11 it says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, these things that we had just read about. And after you fled, then follow righteousness. Whenever you think about fleeing, you don't think about just running or walking or, um, you know, kind of going a different direction. If a person's fleeing, that brings a sense, well, there's two things that are happening. Number one, danger's after you. If you're fleeing, that means there's something coming to get you that you want to get away from. And it also uh, bears out the fact that there's a place that I'm heading to that will be secure and safe. So putting that in the context of unrighteousness, get out of its way. Flee. When you see it coming, go. Isaiah puts it this way, let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Our text here talks about some of the things that we should flee, and I'm not going to elaborate a lot on them, but if you were to summarize them into two things, um, it talks about unhealthy wrangling and unhealthy um, disputations. Uh, just not worth anything. Uh, verse 4 talks about that quite a bit. And then the whole thing that we, we get caught up in, and this is another theme of the New Testament a lot, but the whole thing of getting caught up in, in chasing after um, money and the things that that brings. Uh, Paul here to Timothy says, flee those things and follow righteousness. Um, I had to think of Lot, his wife, whenever he was fleeing from Sodom. He was definitely fleeing unrighteousness. And Lot's wife didn't make it very far because of her reluctance, reluctance to flee. Let's not follow that example. All right, another thing in our, in our forsaking unrighteousness, we must allow ourselves to be cleansed. The psalmist, David in Psalm 51, says, Purge me with hyssop and wash me and I will be whiter than snow. First John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Titus 2 says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify or cleanse unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, when I think of the word cleanse, I think of a pretty good cleaning job. I think about soap and water and brushes and, and, um, and a, real, a real good job. I personally am not a real fan of, uh, of napkins at a table. I, I mean, I, I occasionally need one, but I would much prefer a wet washcloth. That dry napkin just doesn't quite cut it. I, I, if, I, if I'm to the point that I need one... I would much prefer some water and a wash rag, to tell you the truth. However, I will use a napkin when I come to your house. Don't, don't worry about that. But um, I had to think of our, of our dog, Sheba. 
anybody that knows our dog knows it's a little long-haired thing that uh, has a real propensity to get dirty. She loves to chase cattle, and generally when you're doing that, uh, you will get dirty. And so sometimes she's just filthy, and uh, that long hair just collects all that, that grime. And, and so when that happens, occasionally our, our daughters will take the dog and fill up a tub and put some hot soapy water in there and grab the brush and, and brush her up. And when she comes out, she's clean. Uh, I wish we could teach her to stay a little cleaner, but um, that's what she is. And that, that's the picture I get, just cleaned up, squeaky clean, ready to go. That's what we must allow ourselves to do. The irony of the whole thing is the soap's here, the water's here, the person's here to do the scrubbing, and too many times we will not allow him to do that. Let's make sure that we, that we allow Jesus to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. All right, the last point on unrighteousness. Once we are free of unrighteousness, make sure you fill that vacancy with righteousness. Luke 11, Jesus talks about an interesting uh, thing here. He talks about an unclean spirit going out of a man and walking through dry places and finding rest. And he doesn't find any, so he comes back to the, to the person that he left. And he finds the place swept and garnished. But nobody's there. There's vacancy. And so he comes in, he brings in seven more spirits, and it says the last state of that man is worse than the first. The problem was that when the man cleaned his house up, he didn't put any occupants in it to take care of that uninhabited house. Vacant houses don't remain vacant very long. Either they're going to be inhabited or they're going to lose their luster very quickly um, to rodents and dust and mildew and you name it. And the application comes right back to us. Once we do get cleaned up, we allow Jesus to clean us of that unrighteousness, fill that vacancy with righteousness, fill those bad habits with good ones, uh, pursue righteousness. All right, so there's another part to this, um, this uh, thing of pursuing righteousness that we need to talk about. And this one is where we, we get tripped up and it's fraught with peril. And I, and I hesitated to even talk about it because it, it seems like we've been spending so much time on it in, our, in the book of Job. But that is self-righteousness. Um, that doesn't cut it either. And we need to identify that and deal with that as well. A few verses that talk about that. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. A very familiar verse, very self-explanatory. Romans 10 has some words on it. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In Philippians 3, Paul talking about himself here, he says, I want to be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Well, true righteousness only comes through faith in God. False or self-righteousness is something that we do in essence, which in essence becomes a brownie point system. The difficulty sometimes is identifying, is this self-righteousness in me or is this true righteousness? Um, it's interesting to me 
that the same deeds can be performed by two different people, the exact same thing. And the one can be self-righteous, the other one true righteousness. I'll give you an example. Think about the publican and the Pharisee that said their prayers in that temple that day. That Pharisee, um, he listed off a number of things that he did. He fasted, he gave some tithes, he refrained from adultery and extortion, and he lists a number of things there. And um, nobody can argue that this was good spiritual um, uh, practice. This was, there was nothing wrong with this. But where the Pharisee went wrong was when he said, and I'm not like him. God, I'm not like that publican standing there. You know that, God. He began to look at others around him and compare himself and build that brownie point system. And God despised those deeds. Now let's think of Cornelius in Acts 10. We know a few things about Cornelius. We know that he prayed. We know that he fasted. We know that he gave alms, which is very similar to tithing. Maybe that's the way he gave his alms. We know that he was a very devout person. This is, this is what the Bible tells us. But when the angel appeared to him and said, Cornelius, um, God has heard your prayers and he has seen your alms. And that's why I showed up to you today. They were doing virtually the same thing. The Pharisee and Cornelius, there wasn't a lot of difference in the way they were performing. But the difference was in what drove them to that performance. Was it, it, was, it, it boiled down to a focus thing. Was, is it me or is it God that I'm focused on? God's righteousness will produce an outworking of our faith. We know that. And we must individually apply that outworking in our lives. The problem arises whenever there's two things. Whenever our practice of righteousness becomes an end in itself, and we don't do it for God's glory, or when we apply the righteousness that God has given us and our outworking of that, when we apply that as the gold standard, and that's the way that everybody needs to apply it, that again, we become step, we step into dangerous territory. Second Corinthians, a very familiar verse, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, I cannot say that I'm better because I fast or I practice modesty or humility way better than somebody else. I would like to challenge you and encourage you that there's more than one good way to practice a thing and reach an intended outcome. I would, I would just give you this ex example for you to think about, and maybe it's poor, and you can let me know if it is poor, but uh, I'm going to give it to you. So, I milk cows, but I'm not the only person in this congregation that milks cows. Lynn milks cows too. Warren does too. The bottom line is, if you milk cows, there's a reason you do that. You, you, you hope that at the end of the year, the income is going to exceed the expense line, and that there's going to be a profit, and that you're going to be able to to take care of your family and pay the mortgage. That's very simplistic. That's the bottom line. There's a few other things that can't be uh, ignored. If you're going to milk cows, you have to feed them well. Uh, there's, there's a certain way you have to go about doing that. You have, to, you have to care for some other needs. They're not going to do well out there on the north wind today 
um, with no shelter. That's not going to work very well. Uh, you have to, um, it, 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 it's a good thing if we milk them at least twice a day. Um, that helps performance as well. And I won't bore you with some other things, but there's some fundamentals you have to follow if you're going to do this. Now, when the fundamentals are covered, there's, there's other details that doesn't really matter. At that point, there's things we can do differently that are fine, and it's going to work out. Um, us three here in the, in the congregation are an example of different ways of actually getting the milking done. I, I use a stall barn. Lynn uses a flat parlor. Warren uses a, a regular pit parlor. It's just it's not right or wrong. It's just a way of doing it. All right? Now, what if I decided that my way of doing things is the gold standard, and I begin to measure every other dairy farmer around by my gold standard? That's wrong. That's not right. That's not a gold standard. Uh, size, details may, di may differ greatly, but just because I do it a certain way and it works for me does not mean that I need to impose that on somebody else. Now, there's another little side to this thing. Um, can we be satisfied that as individuals, families, churches, that we can practice God's righteousness in our lives or in our communities a little bit different than maybe X, Y, Z down the road and still not disdain those people for that practice? I trust we can. But another caution I would just throw out here um, Sometimes we inadvertently judge people as being self-righteous when they do not deserve that judgment. Um, I came across this illustration in World Magazine, just the last article or the last issue I got. I was just briefly looking through it. There was an article in there on how much screen time children tend to have in, in this techie age that we live in. And what it was is the article was saying how it was giving different uh, they interviewed different parents and how they're dealing with that you know, problem. And this one parent, um, or set of parents, I should say, um, had made this uh, rule in their house that 30 minutes of screen time daily, that's it, no more. That includes your smartphone, your tablet, your computer, your TV, everything. You get 30 minutes, that's it. Well, in today's world, that's not just a lot of time. So that kind of sets them pretty much to the outskirts. I mean, they're kind of fringe here because of their, of their stand on this. So this, this particular mom keeps a blog. And on this blog, she, she wrote how this is what they do. And she said she was surprised at the, at the comments that came back on that blog post. Some of them were raving mad because, hey, you just judged me because you, you, you told us how you do it and, and, and inadvertently, you judge me. Well, not really. She's just saying, this is how we do it. And instead, she was very much misunderstood as trying to judge everybody that doesn't do it like they do it. Well, now, if that was indeed her, if that's indeed what she wanted to do, then yeah, sure, she would have been judging. But that wasn't the, that wasn't the intent. And I think sometimes we feel threatened personally when we see somebody exceeding in, in righteousness, in God's righteousness working through their lives and, and coming out and blessing other people. And we see ourselves as a little inferior to that. And so suddenly we say, ah, there's things in his life that 
I don't know about. There's nobody who can be quite that good. And inadvertently, we begin to judge other people and condemn them for self-righteousness that really doesn't exist. I would just like to really caution us on that. I think it's, uh, I think it's something that we, that we could deal with. I had to think of Moses whenever he had to deal with his problem with Korodathan and Abiram. And maybe this isn't completely, doesn't fit completely, but Korodathan and Abiram basically accused Moses of self-righteousness or lifting himself up above others, which we all know that have the context wasn't true at all. And um, we, we know the outcome of that. That didn't work out very well. Um, they, um, they met their, their demise because of that false accusation of Moses. All right, let's leave that. Let's now look at marks of a person that pursues God's righteousness. And I'd like to just, just run through these. Number one, a person that is pursuing God's righteousness will have an appetite for righteousness. Matthew 5 talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a craving. If you have a craving for something, you will not function well until that craving is satisfied. Um, in 1 Corinthians, I love, this, uh, I love this verse here, where Paul talks about the house of Stephanus. And the house of Stephanus addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. If you have a craving and you want an addiction, there's one that you can, you can addict yourself to. There's nothing wrong with that one. It beats caffeine. How about this one? Surround yourselves with brothers and sisters who are pursuing righteousness and see them as a net asset. I think that's what, um, in, in the verse I read in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, I think that's what he's talking about. He says, flee youthful lust, follow righteousness with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So in your pursuit of righteousness, surround your people that are after the same thing. It's going to be a net benefit. When you think about a volleyball team, and I watched a bit of volleyball at, uh, at uh, Maranatha in the last few weeks. Um, there's some rather poor players and then there's some exceptional players. And they all kind of get blended in on the same team. And I tell you, fuddy-duddies like me benefit hugely from good volleyball players. They can, they can reach in there and, and make up for my mistakes. They can spike my poor sets. They can do things that I could never do. And I, and I might even be on the winning team even though I'm a, a pretty poor volleyball player. And that's the way it is in our pursuit for righteousness. Let's be inspired by other people and how they're doing it. And um, instead of indicting them for self-righteousness, let's be inspired. Let's, be, let's make it a team effort. I think we need to cultivate the practice of confession and understand the value and power of intercessory prayer. And, of course, I'm going to point you to James 5.16 in that very familiar verse. Confess your faults one to another. And pray for one another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's power in partnership and accountability. If you have a particular, if I have a particular strong temptation, and I wish to gain spiritual territory, let's just practice humility. Let's go to a brother. Say, hey, help me out here. Pray for me. Um, I think that's, that's just huge. Um, I have numerous times in my life, and I'm sure you have too, um, had somebody text me. And this is where I really like text messaging. 
Uh, so somebody will text you and say, hey, I'm praying for you. Oh, that just blesses my heart. I just love when, when I get those kind of texts. And it, and it inspires me to pass that on and text somebody else and say, hey, you know, I'm praying for you too. It's something like telling your wife that you love her. You know, we should, your, your wife shouldn't have to wonder if you love her. But you know, it, it sure is okay to tell her sometimes that too. And um, I think it works a lot the same way that in, in that arena. A righteous person, according to Timothy here, and I won't talk about this one long, I touched on it already, but he will avoid unnecessary quarrels and controversy. 